Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Brent Palm, Mike Grimm, and Bloyce Olson. We're going to delve into what's happening in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, the U of M is moving ahead with a state-of-the-art egg teaching and research hub. The FDA is expected to approve over-the-counter naloxone. Workforce shortages continue to impact nursing homes and assisted living centers around the state. But first... The minute we do this, we might get three flakes, but I am concerned about everyone's safety and I want everybody, including staff, to be able to get home safe and not have to work to come here um, and get caught in a bad snowstorm. A major winter storm cut the Minnesota legislature's work week down to about two days, but lawmakers still got a fair amount done before they left St. Paul. And Eminence Bill Werner is here with a recap. Tasha, while the storm was still on meteorologists' radar screens but had not yet rolled into Minnesota, influential Democrats rolled out what has become a perennial push to legalize sports betting in Minnesota. Representative Zach Stevenson from Coon Rapids. If this bill passes, Minnesotans will be able to place wagers on sports at any of the tribal casinos in our state, and they'll also be able to wager on sports on their smartphones anywhere in the state. But that bill, sponsored by Stevenson and Democratic Senator Matt Klein from Mendota Heights, does not give Minnesota's two horse tracks and its pro sports teams a piece of the action. And Republican Senator Jeremy Miller from Winona, the former majority leader, said about that. I don't believe that tribal exclusivity or without something for the tracks has the votes to pass in the Senate. A bill that Miller unveiled in late January would include not only Minnesota's 11 tribes, but also its two horse tracks and all pro sports teams. And early in the week, the House, on a strong vote with little debate, passed a bill to crack down on the rash of catalytic converter thefts in Minnesota, which is currently in the top five for insurance claims. West St. Paul Police Chief Brian Sturgeon supporting that move. We have a large population in our city that lives paycheck to paycheck. Talk about a burden to those individuals that have their catalytic converter stolen, anywhere from a few hundred dollars for a replacement to thousands of dollars. That bill prohibits scrap metal dealers from purchasing a catalytic converter without identifying markings that can trace it to a specific vehicle. It would also be illegal for someone to possess a catalytic converter taken out of a vehicle unless it is so marked. Catalytic converters are valuable because they contain precious metals that can be recycled. Well, by Tuesday morning, it was pretty clear that major winter storm had Minnesota directly in its crosshairs, and the House and Senate decided to cancel all business on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Senate Minority Leader Mark Johnson from East Grand Forks said somewhat tongue-in-cheek. wish we had an in-house expert on the weather that could help us determine whether we should take some time off or not. Senator Kubik, were you going to speak? Senator Kubik. I'm not sure if that was a yield to the question, Mr. President, but uh, yes, uh, snow tonight. We may get a little break tomorrow, uh, and then Wednesday night into Thursday, a lot of snow and a lot of wind, so uh, buckle up. <laughs> In case you're wondering, Moorhead Senator Rob Kupek is a meteorologist. But before the Senate could get out of town, they had to finish floor debate and vote on one high-profile bill, plus debate and vote on another controversial one. The individuals living in our community, there's already been a decision made by the courts. They are safe. They are paying taxes. They're raising families. Minneapolis Democrat Bobby Joe Champion argued felons should be allowed to vote again in Minnesota after they've been released from prison. Princeton Republican Andrew Matthews responded in the case of murder or manslaughter. They have permanently taken away their victims' right to vote. Permanently. 
but the criminal that committed that crime on them, they'll be able to continue voting. Republicans demanded that those convicted of serious violent crimes not be allowed to vote until at least they finish probation. But Democrats in the majority maintain their stance that voting should be restored after a serious offender gets out of prison. Senator Champion argued it encourages rehabilitation by connecting offenders to the community. Individuals who've, who've converted their life and gone to church and not only have been baptized, but have been baptized in changing their conduct and their ways. But Republican Eric Lucero from St. Michael said someone who rapes a child is not going to be rehabilitated just because they're able to vote. The words of Christ himself, whoever offends one of these little ones, it would be greater for a millstone to be tied around their necks and cast into the depth of the sea. The bill is passed and its title agreed to. There will be decorum in the chamber. As the storm continued to build and the clock ticked toward midnight, the Senate took up the second controversial bill, which, like the felon voting legislation, would go directly to the governor's desk if it passed. When I think about this moment, I think about the people. Those of you who are outside, those of you who have, who drove four, five, six, seven hours and are here in the middle of a winter storm. Thank you. Minneapolis Senator Zainab Mohammed talking to immigrants rallying outside the chamber. The issue, should undocumented residents be able to obtain driver's licenses in Minnesota? Why are we giving the identical license that we as legal citizens have to people who are here illegally? Fairable Republican John Jasinski, Democrats say if undocumented residents can get driver's licenses, Minnesota's roads will be safer because they'll have to pass driver's exams and carry insurance. But Glencoe Republican Glenn Grunhagen asked, What in your bill prevents that terrorist from coming to Minnesota getting a driver's license, and getting on an airline and committing a terrorist act. St. Louis Park Democrat Ron Lance responded among a long list of documents that can be used to prove identity. A deferred action for childhood arrival approval issued by the United States Department of Homeland Security. An employment authorization document issued by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Everything you referenced can just about be forged nowadays. Republicans warning of abuse unsuccessfully proposed special markings on the licenses stating not for voting or not for benefits. Anoka Senator Jim Abler. People who are talking to me when I say we're bringing driver's license that looks just like yours, some people who are undocumented, they look at me with saucer eyes and they're like, Seriously? Democrats responded if licenses are specially marked, undocumented immigrants won't get them for fear of being targeted and Minnesota's roads won't be safer. There are a ton of people who have real hatred in their hearts, real hostility for those neighbors of ours who are here working right next to us. Minneapolis Democrat Scott Dibble. This is a driver's license, not a voting card, not a benefits card, but a well-earned driver's license. The bill is passed and its title agreed to. The time, 2 a.m. And as the snow piled up, lawmakers left the Capitol and got ready to go home. Tasha? Thanks, Phil. More Minnesota Matters right after this. Wake up and text. Text and eat. Mm-mm. Text and catch the bus. Text and miss your stop. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Text and be late to work. Sorry, I'm late. Text and work. Text and pretend to work. Text and act surprised when someone calls you out for not working. Who, me? Text and meet up with a friend you haven't seen in forever. Hi. Oh, hey. Text and complain that they're on their phone the whole time. 
text and listen to them complain that you're on your phone the whole time. Ugh. Text and whatever. But when you get behind the wheel, give your phone to a passenger. Put it in the glove box. Just don't text and drive. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radal. The FDA is expected to approve over-the-counter naloxone in March, and addiction specialists in Minnesota think it could save a lot of lives. Eminem's Brent Palm talks about the FDA's recommendation with Hazelton Betty Ford's doctor, Alta Diru. Some good news. I read this week that the uh, FDA is looking at approving over-the-counter naloxone, or the brand name Narcan, and it could happen as soon as next month. Um, Dr. D. Rue, tell me, well, first off, for somebody who's never heard of it, what is the significance of naloxone? Yeah, great question. So naloxone, and you're right, um, trade name Narcan, is a way to reverse somebody who is overdosing and dying from intoxication from an opioid, whether it be morphine, Percocet, something's prescribed, or something illicit like heroin or maybe illicit fentanyl. So it's a life-saving drug that when administered, knocks off the opioid from the receptors in the body and reverses the effect of the opioids. I was watching a hearing with Congresswoman Angie Craig the other day about the fentanyl crisis, and she talked about being on a ride-along with, I think it was maybe the Dakota County Sheriff's Office, and the deputy got called to a restaurant, and someone had OD'd, uh, I believe, on the bathroom floor, and she said this deputy, or she actually, I think they're police officers, but they administered, I guess, some sort of naloxone nasal spray, and basically brought this person back to life. Right. Yeah, exactly. And uh, this does happen, unfortunately, but it happens frequently in bathrooms, at coffee shops, and large department stores. People go in there to use, uh, unfortunately, high schools. This has also happened where they found people dead after the fact. And if, so if somebody is found within enough time and still breathing, if you give this nasal spray, very easy, goes right up into the nostrils. You press the little trigger and a big plume of medicine goes in that person's nostrils through this mucous membrane straight up into the brain where it can be effective and, um, and reverse this overdose and save somebody. So... I'm guessing that if this medication is over the counter, this can be a game changer because we can have it everywhere, right? Yeah, and I love that part. So already a lot of law enforcement carries it on them. And I carry Narcan all the time in case there's an opportunity to use it. But now this means that heck, family members can go in there and use it. So if a family member has a loved one who's suffering from addiction, they can go into a store, buy it over the counter, and keep several of them around without having to go to the pharmacy. Because it's, you know, right now it's available without a prescription, but you still have to go to the pharmacy, get charged your insurance, and there is this face-to-face interaction that you have. And some people feel that there's a stigma associated with this. They don't want the discomfort of having going up to the pharmacist saying that they live with a high-risk individual. And so this way, somebody could go in and buy 
several of these Narcan cartridges to keep around their house or maybe their school so that they could deliver this life-saving medication. So I just see just vast opportunities for this, decreasing stigma, increasing the availability. And as a parent involved in lots of kids' activities, I like being able to have this on me when I go to school, sporting events, anything like that. I know there is a push at the legislature to get Narcan in schools. And like you said, I know some schools already have it. I know one of the representatives would like to see it in, you know, school gyms or government buildings right next to the automated external defibrillator. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because in all of our facilities, we have 15 sites across the U.S. In all of our facilities, there's a break box with additional Narcan right next to the AEDs. So, yeah, absolutely. And often... You'll see that when people are taught um, CPR or basic life support, that even though it's uh, CPR, meaning chest compressions and mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, Narcan is also part of that training now. So I think that makes great sense is to keep the AED and the Narcan side by side. Well, and one of the interesting things, I interviewed a state lawmaker and he actually um, lost a son to an accidental overdose. And so he's very involved. Oh, what was that? Oric opioid response council that he's on that. Yeah. Um, but he mentioned that one of the things they're doing is they're trying to go after these dealers because now, um, a high school kid might be taking what he thought was a Xanax or some sort of a painkiller. It's mixed with fentanyl and these kids overdose. These unintentional overdoses from laced pills are, are happening way too often. You're, you're absolutely right. And this is, this is uh, the unfortunate state of our times right now where a kid in high school may be thinking, hey, I'm going to take this Adderall. It'll help me study for this test or something like that. You know, they're misguided. And, and they're thinking they're taking this pill when you're right. It's laced with fentanyl, a total unintentional poisoning, not necessarily an overdose, but a poisoning. And then they are found at school unconscious in a bathroom stall. And so, you know, if we do have heck, hall monitors, people in the school, anywhere that may be checking the bathrooms, may be able to use this, um, maybe use, be able to use Narcan to reverse this. But yeah, that's happening. Well, Dr. DeRue, I greatly appreciate uh, your input today. Obviously, this is, you know, right up your neck of the woods. And uh, I'm guessing if we can even save uh, a handful of lives, Um, this would be a big-time move for the FDA to uh, make naloxone available over-the-counter. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. Yeah, this is going to be a game-changer. Thanks, Brent. More Minnesota Matters coming up. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radal. Workforce shortages continue to impact nursing homes and assisted living centers around the state. MNN contributor Blois Olson visits with Leading Age Minnesota President and CEO Carrie Thurlow. Over the next few weeks, we're going to have a series of interviews about one of the issues that hasn't gotten enough attention in the legislature, and that's caring for our seniors. Minnesota really is in a crisis state. Like many industries, care centers are facing a major labor shortage of caregivers, not being able to pay them enough money because of the state set rates and reimbursement. And over the next few weeks, we're going to call attention and have conversations throughout Minnesota about this crisis and what the legislature and governor could do in the minds of the people who care for our seniors. Our first conversation is with Leading Age President and CEO, Carrie Thurlow. Here's that conversation. Leading Age Minnesota is the state's largest association of senior care providers. Our members are mission-driven to 
care for Minnesota seniors and their families. And the biggest challenge we face is uh, a workforce, critical workforce shortages that is deeply impacting the ability for seniors to receive care in their home communities throughout the state. I talked to someone who said that they um, could care for about 100 more seniors if they had the staff. Is that a common theme across the state? It really is. We have hundreds of openings throughout the state in Minnesota's nursing homes and assisted living settings. And the number one thing we hear is that they have wait lists but can't admit individuals because they don't have staff. What's the biggest factor, two or three factors, related to staffing that they're just not you know, labor is a problem everywhere, but specifically for for your members, what what is it about staffing that's the biggest challenge? I think there are three notable challenges that our members face. The first is low wages. And what many people don't understand is that state lawmakers provide reimbursement rates to pay wages. Those reimbursement rates haven't kept up. And so wages haven't kept up with the rapid inflation that we've seen in other parts of the economy. The second issue that is impacting our workforce is regulatory burden. Quite frankly, our workforce is burned out by a very aggressive, punitive regulatory environment uh, that uh, those caregivers can experience less of that in other settings. And the third issue is, quite frankly, just COVID fatigue. They have sat uh, and been uh, companions and caregivers of Minnesota seniors throughout this pandemic. And quite frankly, they are burned out. How, how do you see um, solutions? What, what are the solutions um, to help recruit more people and retain more people uh, to these care, caregiver jobs? So I think there are multiple solutions. No doubt about it, we are going to have to work together to improve training opportunities and bring more people to Minnesota in general. We have a people problem. But the f place where we believe the solutions start is by providing enough funding to pay livable wages for caregivers. Quite frankly, we can create training programs and recruitment programs and reforms to bring all the people to Minnesota uh, that we can. But if we don't have careers that are paying family-sustaining wages in senior care, all of those other efforts uh, will not ne be nearly as successful as they need to be. So we are calling on lawmakers this year to invest a significant amount of funding uh, in reimbursement rates so that we can elevate caregiver wages. The state has a nearly $18 billion surplus. When, when you talk about funding, how much? What's the range? Because other groups use numbers all the time. What's what's what are the, what's the number for caregivers? You know, base level for us is we believe that at least a billion dollars of the state's surplus should go to improving reimbursement rates for seniors, uh, senior caregiving, uh, in uh, all sorts of settings, care centers assisted living, home care. Uh, we believe that a billion dollars is needed to elevate starting caregiver wages to $25 by the year 2025. Now, we can argue that there are other additional investments needed in senior care, but at, a, at its base, at its core, uh, that is what we're asking for this year. And what should legislators, there's a lot of new legislators, what should they hear, know, and think about when they're thinking about how important this is? So I think there are a couple of things that new lawmakers should think about. First, uh, I think that they need to remember that Minnesota is an aging state. 
that part of our future for Minnesota is thinking about how we will invest in and care for a senior demographic, uh, where uh, a population where we have more seniors than school children. I think the second thing that new lawmakers need to recognize and really have front of mind is their responsibility to ensure that caregivers have family sustaining wages. We simply can't do it without their action and quite frankly we can't wait. Since you can't wait, since we have a surplus, how quickly would you like them to act? Uh, if yesterday was an option, that would be great. Lois Olson visiting with Leading Age Minnesota President and CEO Carrie Thurlow. Time for a quick break. More Minnesota Matters in 60 seconds. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radal. Officials with the University of Minnesota are optimistic about moving ahead with a state-of-the-art egg teaching and research hub. Brian Buer is dean of the College of Food, Egg, and Natural Resources Sciences, and he says Mower County is the proposed site for the future of advanced egg research in Minnesota known as the Farm Complex. In part one of a two-part interview, MNN Learfield Egg reporter Mark Dorenkamp spoke with Buer for an update on the project. So we actually started about four years ago or so, and really it was centered around uh, replacement and improvements in some of our livestock and animal ag research facilities. Uh, since that, now it's expanded to include you know, both crops and animal ag, and we've gotten to the point where we completed a feasibility that was about a year and a half ago. Uh, the goal of that was to really just look at the construct of what's the the, the needs for research and education, uh, what kind of facility do we need to advance, what we think of as an integrated uh, crops to animal ag research system, which is fairly, well, we know from the feasibility, nobody has quite that version. They're usually built somewhat piecemeal. And so um, we're at that point now, we're looking at both uh, you know, funding as well as siting land acquisition, uh, we're getting moving to the stage of implementation, but there's still some work to do there. Once implemented, what will this mean for CFANS? What will this mean for the region? And what could it ultimately mean for production agriculture in Minnesota and beyond? You know, maybe I'll start with the production agriculture question. Um, you know, what we're finding in just the context for this project is, as many people with ag now, of course, for a while we started, I'll call it decoupled a bit of the agricultural cropping systems from animal agriculture. What we're seeing happen now is very much that issue of what's happening on the landscape with cropping systems like back to manure management, nutrient management, which we've always known. But the ability to understand what's happening in that interaction of soil health, soil fertility, carbon sequestration, nutrient management, plant health related to that, we really looked at it as can we, for, for agriculture, can we actually build a system by design advance our capabilities to do that work in a more controlled environment. 
because we're talking when we do field-based research, a lot of non-abilities not to control it. So that was the idea from production agriculture is really start to think about how do we how do we really with climate change pressures coming, with needs for biorenewable fuels, all those elements are coming robotics, remote sensing technologies. Can we combine that together in a system where we can answer those answer those cross-cutting questions? Um, so it really is a benefit to all of the production agriculture side. Um, and that kind of gets to what we were looking at when we were doing this was, um, you know, we have some facilities that I mentioned earlier that are near their, their active life for research programs. And so we really wanted to, for the University of Minnesota, create a site where, A, we could do that research, position ourselves well for serving Minnesota and beyond, um, because this is going to be a regional project as we're looking at it. Um, but then also the education standpoint. Um, that it does for us to bring students into an opportunity where they have connection to all these will be sort of modern commercial type facilities. Um, what we're hearing a lot from industry and farmers was is we're hiring employees looking for the next generation coming in. They often don't have experience uh, in those systems. So we're really looking to develop those for our students uh, to advance their goals. And then, of course, that leads into industry as well. The location that you identified for this project, talk about why it was selected, and also sort of the, the physical infrastructure needs that go along with it and, and what, what the ask is and, and what it might look like. Yeah, so location-wise was two reasons. We looked across the state, um, and as we were doing that, we engaged a bit with the Hormel Foundation in Austin. And we were looking for sites based on you know, landscape, which I'll come to that in a bit. But as part of that connection, uh, the Hormel Foundation has provided uh, initial funding for the project. Um, and they're very supportive of it. And so they've been uh, gracious enough that we have a location that's proximate to where they have uh, their funding needs to remain in that region. And so we're, we're going there. What's interesting about that, though, is we're looking around. Uh, one of the things many people in know, and of course, when I was talking about crop systems and nutrient management, um, the Cedar River watersheds in that region, and that flows, of course, down into Iowa. And as we were looking at, at areas, A, you've got the two uh, I-90 and I-35 cutting very close by. So we do have an outreach component to this. And as I say, I think of, uh, you know, Fair Oaks in Indiana does a terrific job of bringing the public in to understand agriculture, sort of taking a page from that book. So that, that element ties us into Iowa, Wisconsin, South Dakota, uh, to be, give access for people who are interested in learning more about our modern agricultural systems. The Cedar River watershed I was talking about is that piece where we'll be doing hydrological, and we've already identified some potential locations. Uh, that leads into how do we advance um, you know, retention of nutrients on the soil, in the field, uh, address issues of nutrient runoff into streams and that rivershed. And there's some NGOs, well-known NGOs, that work in that region on that issue. So we've got actually a, a situation of the soils, topography, the watershed, that creates a really interesting element to address those core issues that do affect, again, multiple states um, through, through those changes. Um, so we're excited about that location for both the, the mission of it and then, of course, also a really strong partner and the third leg to that is um, we have been working with the Riverland Community College, which is in Austin, Minnesota, uh, previously on joint projects in farm business management and also a transfer programs for students. And what that allows us to do, this will be an education facility. Uh, we have it designed to do both, uh, as I said, outreach, but also K-12, as well as two-year technical programs. So Riverland has a great program in agricultural um, industry systems. Uh, we'll be working with them so we can bring in those Students that are in that area, of course, we'll have our bachelor's and Ph.D. researchers, master's degrees uh, there as well. So it gives us a location to partner with a two-year school in Minnesota to bring that connectivity into the research as well. So 
that's kind of the sighting piece that really makes it a really unique opportunity. That's MNN Learfield Ag reporter Mark Dorenkamp with Brian Buer from the U of M's CFANS School. Part two of the update can be heard in next week's Minnesota Matters episode. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Minnesota Matters. Be sure to join us again next week on this MNN affiliate station, same time, same place. Until next time, I'm Tasha Radel. Have a great week.